It's that time of the year again, election season. In a midterm election with no big races, a number of different issues have made their way to the forefront, including Indiana's unique education system. Behind many decisions in the state's public education system are school boards. They're responsible for creating the visions for public schools and implementing changes. I'm WFIU reporter Alexander McCall, joined by State Impact Indiana education reporter Rachel Morello. Today on Noon Edition, we'll talk about the various roles of school boards and the education election trends in the state. We'll hear from a handful of policy experts, and we invite you to join our conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm WFIU reporter Alexander McCall. And I'm State Impact Indiana education reporter Rachel Morello. We're filling in for Bob and Mary Catherine who are out today. Education is a priority for State Impact on a daily basis and it seems to also be of great interest to voters and those running for public office as well. Today we're going to discuss how learning, teaching, school funding and the like are playing a role in this year's state elections. And we're pleased to be joined today by some folks who have expertise in expertise in both politics and policy. In studio, we're joined by Ashlyn Nelson. Ashlyn is an associate professor at Indiana's Indiana University's School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Steve Hinefeld is also here. Steve is a longtime education blogger and former reporter at the Bloomington Herald Times. And last but not least, we're joined by Dave Emmert. Dave is an attorney with the Indiana School Board Association. Welcome. Thank you all for being here today. If you would like to join our conversation, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also log on to the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition or tweet us at noon edition. So I know we've kind of given basic overviews of what you guys do, but could we kind of just go down the line and maybe you can describe to us your area of expertise in education? We'll start with you, Ashlyn. Um, I am an economist of education, and I study issues around school finance and equity and access in education, primarily focusing on K-12 education in the U.S. I'm a, uh, this is Steve. I'm a former education reporter at the Herald Times, and, and I do a blog called School Matters or IN School Matters that is about uh, education policy and politics primarily, primarily in Indiana, uh, and I've followed local and state education issues for quite a few years. I think the first uh, school board election I covered might have been in, in 1988. Nice. And Dave? And I'm Dave Emmert, General Counsel for the Indiana School Boards Association. We're a private not-for-profit group formed at IU Bloomington's, part of its School of Education in 1949. Our purpose then and our purpose now is to help train and develop school board members consult with them on a daily basis as well as their 
administrative staffs, principals, superintendents, their attorneys. We, we train attorneys twice a year. We develop school board members. We either come to individual schools throughout the state. Our um, director of board development does that. And then we have constant training uh, every other month, uh, basically, in, in law um, and uh, policy and other things. We lobby in the General Assembly for improvement of public education. So my, my role basically is to head up a three-person legal team and try to um, inform and help people arrive at the right decisions. So one of the things we wanted to talk about today was school board elections, because that might be something people who are listening are familiar with, might be one of the things they're voting on this time around. So Dave, let's just sort of start with you. I'd like to know you know, what a school board does, what's the main function of a school board? Um, the main function of a school board is to hire the best superintendent possible and let him or her manage. Where board members individually tend to get into difficulty is when they try to be micromanagers. And the public, if it learns that a board member is willing to go in there and speak what an individual or a, a group within a school wants, not that you shouldn't do that, but if, if you've got a personal interest and you don't think of the whole school corporation and its benefit and improvement, you really are gonna be driven crazy trying to satisfy individual members of the public. So our common uh, uh, point is to think in terms of children first, try not to make political type of promises. If you'll vote on this, I'll, I'll vote on that. And to um, think in, in broad terms, not your personal interest. So if your motivation is to help the community pass policy, consider policy, deliberate on policy, pass the policy, and evaluate the superintendent who is to carry out the management function of what the board takes the lead on, then you're going to be a good board member. Dave, do you happen to know how many school boards in Indiana or what percentage are elected and what percentage are appointed? Yeah, good, good question. I don't stay totally up to date on that, but I think we have now maybe 13 or 14 remaining uh, appointed school boards. And there's a combination of uh, mayors, town councils, that, that assist in that uh, endeavor. So we're, we're looking at roughly 200 and I would say 76 uh, school boards that are elected. This is interesting to me also because I think one of the boards that people who will read our blog and listen to some of our stuff might be familiar with is the state board and the elected versus appointed argument um, with the state superintendent and their members has been something that's been a bit controversial over, of late. So I'm wondering, actually, is that something of controversy to local school boards, uh, the elected versus appointed discussion? They have so much going on in their local communities, and there is so much change from the Indiana General Assembly. I mean, major pieces of legislation beginning really in 2011 to go to more of a performance based review of teachers and administrators, of collective bargaining, basically doing away partially with seniority and evaluating teachers much more on their individual performances. So 
in the, the bullying law in 2012, there was a major amendment. So they keep us hopping. The General Assembly is is uh, got the duty from the from the uh, Indiana Constitution to set up a system of public schools, and they've done it. But they have really taken an active approach lately, and so because they're so busy there, at least I personally, and we don't get calls on that whole statewide issue. People have, I think, different views on, on the subject. Yeah. Sure, go ahead, Ashlyn. Yeah, I think a big difference uh, in the way that this operates at the state level versus the local level is at the state level, our state board of education is appointed and our state superintendent of public instruction is elected. And we basically have the opposite at the local level where we have elected school board officials locally and they appoint superintendents. So with that being said, uh, I mean, how would, how would you say that the school board election has evolved recently? The various local, local school board elections? Mm -hmm. um, I think they're drawing more interest, uh, although they've always drawn a lot of interest. I, I can remember that first election I covered, there was uh, a lot of interest in, uh, uh, in Monroe County in, in the local election. There wasn't so much money spent, but there were certainly groups of people that were very active in, in uh, supporting uh, various candidates. There's always, sometimes there are slates of candidates that seem to draw support from the same uh, groups of people, sometimes formally slates, sometimes not. I think there's always been a lot of interest, but I think it kind of ebbs and, 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 and flows a little bit, uh, depending on what's going on in the local community, depending on really personalities who's involved, uh, relations between the superintendent and the, and the local teachers, uh, a lot of things that can, that can come into play. Who do we see running for these school boards, either now or historically? Are, are they parents? Are they, you know, what, what are their professions? Give me sort of, give us sort of a flavor of who these people are. Well, I can start out on that. I talk to them individually every day. <laughs> and from people who are secretaries that have been just parents and care so much about their own children and other children who become active at the building level, uh, room mothers and then PTA, PTO leaders that, that are super enthusiastic who have volunteered tremendous amounts of time to help make that building better just as a mom or a dad, but it's usually the, uh, the mothers. And those people are sincerely motivated and they can learn. Uh, a person of normal intelligence who cares and is willing to put in the sweat equity to learn can become a tremendous school board member. And yet we go to professionals, attorneys, uh, doctors, uh, professors, um, tremendous wide range, and a lot will depend upon your community. Uh, agriculture, the, I mean, farmers certainly have a stake in, uh, because most communities, uh, a lot of those taxes go to run the public school, although it's, it's less now that the state, in essence, have taken over, uh, sending most of the money, but still, your, your buildings, all of your buildings, for example, is a local uh, tax issue. So it's a wide, diverse range of people. Let's talk a little bit about the finance of these campaigns. Ashlyn, this is your area, the money, maybe a little bit more, but um, 
how how are we seeing funds brought into these smaller elections? Um, I don't think we actually have that much action going on at the local level among small school corporations in Indiana or across the nation. So I think a lot of people think that there's been this huge uptick in campaign finances aimed at high-stakes school board elections in large urban districts, and that's probably the case. But that type of election does not characterize the vast majority of elections going on at the local level. So... um, You know, a recent study found that about uh, only 10 percent of candidates in school board elections nationally spent more than $5,000 for their seat, and only 1 percent spent as much as $25,000. So uh, the types of elections that get a lot of uh, attention in the popular press are outlier elections and typically in large urban school districts across the country. I think a lot of there was a lot of public outcry in 2002 when there was a very controversial uh, superintendent in place in San Diego Unified School District in California named Alan Burson. And uh, his supporters and people who did not support him spent um, more than a million dollars on uh, three seats to sort of uh, try to either stack the decks either for or against uh, Alan Burson as a superintendent. And everybody freaked out when uh, they found out that how much money had been spent on a school board election. But that is certainly not the typical story that we see. So are there any contentious races? Or maybe I should look for the less less contentious races going on. Let's look at some of the races that are happening in Indiana. We were talking earlier about this IPS race. Um, Steve or Ashlyn, we were sort of discussing this before. Does one of you want to kind of give us a rundown of what's going on in Indiana? Well, Indi- there are candidates, uh, and this happened also two years ago in the IPS election, and uh, it's a little hard to, to try to analyze what happens in Indianapolis from down here in Bloomington, I'd say for me, but um, but it's certainly getting a lot of attention. It's been covered uh, to a certain extent in the, in the news media. Uh, there are three, poss- th- possibly four candidates um, running for the three seats out of 10 candidates who are getting a lot of money, and in some cases, a considerable amount of money from uh, out of out of state, from both coasts for the most part, and and from people who are um, closely identified to a certain extent with with what's known of it known of as school re- school reform or education reform uh, advocates for charter schools, including some people who serve on uh, the boards of directors of some well-known charter schools, uh, people who um, the CEO of, of of LinkedIn and his wife. Uh, Cheryl uh, Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, uh, Campbell Brown, the TV newscaster who's sort of gone at, gone to war with teachers unions, uh, have all been contributors to in, to individual candidates in IPS. Is this something we're seeing around the country, or is Indiana seeing it around the country for sure? In certain places, uh, Minneapolis is one place where it's happened happening this year. It's happened quite a bit, and it's gotten a certain amount of media coverage. I think, especially from kind of the alternative press or the progressive press in in Minneapolis and Minnesota, uh, Denver. It happened, I think, two years ago, quite a bit. Uh, several districts in California, New Jersey, I believe, to a certain extent, in Texas. So. Uh, places, urban districts, like Ashland said, where where uh, issues uh, of the um, relationship between the public schools and charter schools, in particular, uh, are are really kind of reaching a pitch, uh, is are attracting a lot of uh, a lot of national attention. 
Today on Noon Edition, we're discussing education in the upcoming election. Tell us about school-related items on your local ballot. What's on your mind when voting on these matters? Share your comments by participating in the live chat on wfiu.org slash Noon Edition or uh, with a tweet at Noon Edition. Uh, you can also call into the program at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. Um, so I have a question for you guys. What is this something, you know, recent? This this flush of money into into school board elections. Is there an increase in funding over the last few years? I think Ashlyn pointed out that there have been cases several years ago, ten, twelve years ago, where there was a lot of money spent. But I think there, that overall, uh, it's sort of uh, my sense is that that people who are interested in education policy. Uh, as a national issue have sort of come to a realization to a greater extent that local uh, school board elections might be where the the rubber meets the road and where they can have an influence uh, beyond what they might have been able to have at the state house and and in the national elections. You know, perhaps that could be the next study for the School of Public and Environmental Affairs <laughs> at Indiana University. All this is public record. Uh, we have about 1,700 school board members in Indiana, and, and let's say of, of, of those, maybe 1,500 and some would be elected. Anyone spending $500 or more or receiving $500 or more does have to file a document. I'm assuming that is electronically available, so it would be interesting to know. I mean, up till I heard about what was happening in Indianapolis public schools, for example, we're talking about multiple thousands of dollars of amounts coming in from out of, out of state. Uh, the most I had was up in, I'll just say, DeKalb County, I won't say which corporation, but this woman was on our board of directors and she was being contested. And uh, so she spent $3,000 of her own money. She set up her own and, and did it all legally. But boy, that seemed like a lot to me. Well, that was maybe 20 years ago. And so um, it's up to each individual. So if most people don't spend 500, then they wouldn't even have to file a campaign form. But those spending 500 or more have to file the form. So the, the data's out there, but no one's collected it. Robert, oh, go, Ash, go ahead, Ashlyn. Um, I was just going to say that one of the things that's really interesting about school boards is that um, they play a very important role in the functioning of a school district, but there isn't a lot of widespread understanding about what exactly they do. And I think in part that may explain um, explain a lack of interest in the past in these types of elections. But I'm hoping that to the extent that we see an increase in campaign financing for these positions, that also signals a growing interest on behalf of the public in the functioning of school boards. So, um, you know, school boards set policies, they monitor performance within the district. They also oversee union contract negotiations, which has become an increasingly contentious issue in recent years. And um, in the past, we've seen that teachers union endorsed candidates win about 76% of the time, at least in California, where one of the studies has been done. So in, in, in the past, uh, teachers unions have been the primary sort of large special interest sponsors of, uh, of candidates for local school board elections. And since we've had this large reform-based agenda sweep the country and affect all aspects of public education, we've seen some other types of special interest groups come in and provide financing to back different candidates. But um, 
you know, all that said, uh, there just isn't that much knowledge or information about school boards in general. So um, there's a recent report out that said um, 63% of adults and 50% of parents cannot name the superintendent in their local school district. Oh, wow. 62% of an adults and 48% of parents can't name any of their local school board members. So that sort of highlights how little is known about who these people are on the school boards and what they do in spite of their very prominent role in shaping local school district policy. And we should, I mean, most of these meetings are public meetings, too, isn't that right? So parents are welcome, you know, to go to go to these meetings, these sorts of things. I'm sure, Steve, you've been to your handful of meetings in your time covering things, and Dave as, you know, just legal a few, counsel. Just a few. Well, no, I, <laughs> I don't. I, we advise if they call. Sure. And we, we train. But one of the more interesting thing is, in terms of their role and not really knowing their role, is, is we have candidate forums every two years when there are school board elections around the state. So we go around the state, but not that many people come. And so if they're thinking of running or have already tossed the hat in the ring, we'll spend three hours with them just going over what is the rule so they have a, a good idea. And again, our motto, always think in terms of children first and avoid playing the traditional politics. But then we start training. We have a two-day conference within a month after the elections, and we're going to go statewide and try going regionally in all 10 regions and talk about school governance. We're trying something new. Usually we have a centralized meeting, and now our director of board development is going statewide. So we want to reach out to them and help them focus on really what is it to be a good school board member, because they've been very active people. They're caring people. And they're community people, and, and at least in smaller communities, they know who the board members are because they've been, they've been active. And then you get into your suburban and, and urban. That's I think we get into some of the figures Ashlyn was talking about, not knowing who they are. Right. Um, I want to jump a little bit, Steve, to talk before the break about a story that you did earlier this week. We'll switch over to legislative um, elections a little bit and some of the financing for that. Do you want to just sort of talk about what – you've been writing about recently with regard to those races? Well, um, campaign finance reports are, are out and posted online uh, for state legislative candidates. I think they're pretty much all up now at, for uh, state legislative uh, races at the Secretary of State's uh, election division site. And so you can go in and, and look at, at who's spending money and, and who's receiving contributions for their campaigns and where it's coming from. Um, and there are a few uh, races, actually several, scattered around the state that are drawing a lot of late money that appear to be in play. Uh, I said, I think most people know Indiana is a, a state where Republic, the Republicans have super majorities both in the House and the Senate. Uh, the Democrats are trying to cut into that super majorities, get to the point where they could block a quorum in the House. That's probably the most they could hope for in this particular election given the way districts are drawn. Uh, but there's been a lot of education-related money that's come into certain um, certain races that appear to be close, uh, and a lot of this has to do with with uh, policies that have been adopted by the legislature, largely on party-line votes. The expansion of, of charter schools, in particular, the cre creation of, of Indiana's school voucher program, uh, and also some policies and laws that are aimed at uh, restricting the uh, the power and influence of teachers' unions. So. Um, so the post I did uh, earlier this week uh, was about a particular, largely about a particular organization called Hoosiers for Quality Education, used to be called Hoosiers for Economic Growth. 
that's been contributing pretty uh, generously to certain Republican candidates in the state. And furthermore, that gets uh, most of its money uh, from an organization called the American Federation for Children PAC uh, that is not based in Indiana, Indiana, although it does file its campaign finance reports from an Indiana uh, address. Um, and it gets uh, its money from pretty well-known and very wealthy uh, national advocates of school choice and vouchers, uh, in particular the Walton family, uh, of, uh, associated with Walmart. So that was that was the post that I wrote earlier this week. Uh, there's certainly a lot of education money coming in from both sides, and in those same districts, the ones that seem to be in play, uh, the Indiana State Teachers Association PAC, known as IPACE, is uh, spending very heavily as well. I want to get back to this, but I think we are going to have to go to a short break quickly and then come back. Um, so you're listening to Noon Edition here on WFIU, and we want to hear your questions and comments for our guests as well. Give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the discussion on the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition or on Twitter by tweeting at Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. my NPR voice. There you go. I sound, yes. I sound Welcome too. back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about education in the upcoming election cycle. I'm WFIU reporter Alexander McCall, and I'm joined by State Impact Indiana education reporter Rachel Morello. Um, in the studio with us today is Ashlyn Nelson, an associate professor at Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Steve Hinefeld, uh, who's a long longtime education blogger and a former reporter at the Bloomington Herald Times, and Dave Emmert, uh, Dave's an attorney with the Indiana School Board Association. Yeah, so we opened up kind of a big pathway with the last comment Steve made before we a went big to can break. Of worms. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'll just, I guess we'll just start. I want to ask about charter schools and sort of how this is playing into these legislative elections. Anybody want to get us started on that? I think it's really interesting, the politics that are going on across party lines right now in um, local school board elections across districts throughout the nation. Um, the, the most interesting political development that I've seen in the last decade in K-12 public education in the U.S. has been around the splitting of the Democratic Party along lines uh, uh, that are traditionally, you know, where you have a traditional uh, sort of 
constituency that's very pro-teachers union um, and uh, was more traditionally aligned with uh, the Democratic Party. And then you have uh, Democrats who have adopted a very strong reformist agenda. And um, it's it's been very interesting. Uh, we see a lot of Republicans who are very pro-education reform and uh, their agendas are sort of embodied by, uh, for example, Jeb Bush's governorship of Florida and all of the accountability-based pro-school choice uh, policies that he advocated for and achieved in Florida. And uh, education policy uh, folks often joke, you know, is there a, a difference between Jeb Bush and Arne Duncan, our secretary of education anymore, because those are largely the policies that have been adopted by our uh, Democratic sec secretary of education at the federal level. And so we see a big cleft developing within the Democratic Party um, between folks who are traditionally backed by um, union support and uh, the power of the collective bargaining unit and those who want to see weaker teachers, uh, unions, contracts, and are very pro-reform, uh, where reform equals school choice, uh, greater teacher accountability measures, et cetera. I think I'd add that there's also been a, something of a cleft in the Republican Party over education, uh, maybe not as, as obvious and not as, as uh, all-encompassing, but certainly uh, a philosophical difference uh, among Republicans over the idea of um, national standards, national uh, direction for education, which has been uh, pretty much supported by a lot of business-type Republicans, and, and a huge suspicion of that marked by the uh, uh, sort of grassroots uh, conservative movement against the Common Core standards. Um, so I think there's been a lot of interesting uh, cutting and slicing over education issues. We just got a call. We got a caller on the line from Wayne, who's in Bloomington. He's got a question. Wayne, go ahead. Yeah, one of your guests earlier in the program listed the interest groups from which school board candidates come, and he failed to mention the teachers' union. A teachers' a teacher union interest in, in public schools favors teachers' interests, not student interests. In other words, getting paid more for doing less. And now I notice that one of our school board candidates, Kelly Smith, is endorsed by the AFL-CIO labor union. Why would a, a labor union endured, endorse a school board member? I, I think, Ashlyn, you were just talking about teachers unions a little bit and how, you know, they play into these elections. We want to answer, the, you know, address that question a little bit? Yeah, uh, I think the, the key issue here is that teachers unions do typically endorse different candidates for school boards, and that's because school boards have um, some oversight over union contractual negotiations. Uh, I, I think the question of whether teacher interests are uh, completely uncorrelated with student interests is an open question that everybody could debate here for a while. But um, this is this is an example of a situation where unions and other organizations back particular candidates to oversee them who they think will best uh, represent both their interests. And I think teachers unions would also argue that their interests are also aligned with students' interests. And, and I would support that a uh, 100%. Um, a lot of retired teachers become school board members. A lot of those retired teachers were very active in the union. I have personally gotten to know quite a few of them. 
And when they see the bigger picture, I think they really lose uh, any extreme bias they may have had. Once they understand what schools are about, they get trust in their board mem- fellow board members, trust in their superintendent, and they trust the teachers. And I, I agree totally with what Ashland said, just because an individual might might have the endorsement of a, of a labor group who's running for the school board. And in Bloomington, it's a lot more complex than that. And the key is what's the heart and the motivation of that person. Just because you might be endorsed or even receive some money does not automatically throw you into only a narrow point of view. I want to thank Wayne for his question. I, I think we should move on. We've only got a little bit of time left and quite a lot left to talk about. Um, I, I kind of want to actually move from what you've been talking about. And I noticed also, Steve, um, you mentioned this in your post, we've got some educators who are running for some positions. What impact does that have on, you know, sort of where their stances lie? Um, there have always been legislators or educators, to my recollection, or have long been in the in the General Assembly, and they certainly, uh, it's, 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 it's uh, one of the uh, sort of pros and cons of having a citizen legislature in Indiana. Um, and uh, teachers, educators are often uh, thought to be there representing the, the interests of teachers, although some have uh, uh, been very publicly uh, against the positions of, of the ISTA and, and, the, and the IFT uh, in the legislature. I can think of some, a few teachers who, who have, have supported vouchers and supported charter schools and so on. Uh, so I think it's, it's a complex picture. But uh, but it, it's something that that everyone should be aware of. I think it's it's you know just as uh, we have insurance sales salespeople and a lot of lawyers uh, <laughs> in the legislature who uh, many people think look out for the interests of their professions. Uh, people who uh, work for nursing homes or are involved in nursing home businesses and so on, um, and people who are involved in in medical uh, um, businesses and so on. So uh, it it it's certainly a something to be aware of, of, of concerning our legislature. I think I might do a little crowdsourcing here because this is actually something that we are going to talk about today on our blog um, at State Impact. So there's a plug for the blog. Um, what are some of the things that the state legislature will be dealing with in regards to education this upcoming session? Does anybody want to take that one? Well, the budget's the big one. <laughs> um, the sc- school funding is the biggest part. I believe even the majority now of the state budget, and uh, so what extent uh, that funding is increased for schools for the next two years in the biennial budget that will be approved in 2015, uh, and also how that money is distributed. Uh, the House Republicans, uh, Republican leadership said, uh, announced their agenda, and part of it was to uh, quote unquote fix the school funding formula, uh, which many people. Uh, look at and find various inequities and, and problems with. And uh, so that's always a big debate because unless you're like really increasing money by a whole, this you know, overall money by quite a bit, if you're going to give more to certain people, um, if you're going to quote unquote equalize, that means you're going to take away or give smaller increases to other school districts. And uh, then it, it does come down to, you know, which uh, types of districts are, are represented by which legislators. Can we talk a little bit about that school funding formula? Even, I mean, I've been on this beat and I'm a little confused by it. So can can we kind of just get 
a basic description out there for people? Sure. Uh, so the school funding formula is a complex formula, and what it does uh, essentially is in, in our state, it's it's very different state by state, but in Indiana what we do is we take general fund dollars, uh, which are you know state revenues that are largely comprised of sales and income tax revenues, and we use a formula to allocate those dollars across school corporations using a formula that allocates them on a per student basis but makes adjustments for a variety of other things like the percent of students enrolled in free and reduced price lunch programs within the school corporation. So what are the fixes that are being proposed? What, what sort of changes to that are they talking about here? Well, I think there are some, certainly some districts that uh, if you s look straight up at how much money per, per pupil uh, each district gets, some get considerably less than others. And uh, the implication seemed to be uh, that, uh, that that's not fair and that there should be a, an attempt to do a better job of equalizing that. Um, and, um, you know, the other side of it is that the schools, the districts for the most part, um, that get more money per pupil because, as Ashlyn said, of certain factors, what's, what goes into what's called the complexity index, uh, which is free and reduced price lunch percentages, also English language learners, I believe. So I think some other factors, um, um, you know, that, that if you're going to bump up some of the schools that get less per pupil, uh, it's potentially going to be at the uh, um, sort of at, at to the loss of uh, schools with more uh, arguably needy and vulnerable students. So it's a, it's a very tough call. On today's Noon Edition, our guests have been discussing education in the upcoming midterm election. To share your comments or questions, log on to the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition or give us a tweet at Noon Edition. You can also call us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-0811. 9348. And Ashlyn, you have something you would like to add? Yeah, I think a big change that happened a couple of years ago in school finance is we moved to a dollars to the student type of formula where we basically phased out a lot of um, funding pri primarily going to large urban school districts around the state um, to that basically functioned as a, a stop-loss policy, where if they had large reductions in enrollments from uh, a hollowing out of large urban centers, they didn't lose that amount in per-pupil funding. And we, we took a step to phase that out, which means that large urban districts like Indianapolis Public Schools have lost a lot of funding in total because now they are only receiving an amount on a, on a per-pupil basis that's sort of equal to the number of students they have enrolled, and they face year over year reductions because they've seen year over year losses and declines in student enrollment overall. So that's been a huge issue for urban districts who have just found it a challenge to keep all of their schools in operation and are faced with some very real challenges around, uh, you know, decisions like should we consolidate our school, uh, our school district and combine different schools together just because they're having a problem meeting basic operating uh, expenses within some of their schools. So would you say that's where local school boards sort of come into play with this, these larger state issues? Like, do they have some sort of, I mean, you know, how do they help with those sorts of issues with enrollment and things like that? 
Well, e each school would tell you if, if they were here from the smallest to the largest, we, we need more money. Uh, the school association has a legislative platform, and, and this year we've adopted that, that premise of, of bringing those lower receiving schools up and, and building that base higher. And as Steve pointed out, it might be at the expense of some of those schools that are receiving more per pupil. And yet our, our thinking on that is that we've, we've got a $2 billion surplus in this state, and, and we are trying to energize our members. We just came off of going 10 regions. Our executive director, Brian Smith, and, and myself spoke to about 1,200 board members and, and, and superintendents in the last several weeks. And, and one of the messages is to, to activate those people. Uh, our, our funding basically is, is almost pre-recession funding, and back to like 2008, and then we had a $300 million that the, uh, the previous governor found out that we just didn't have the money that was appropriated, so had to cut back not only state funding, but money, $300 million that went out to schools, we've never gotten back. So that's going to be one of our messages. Now, how much we can galvanize our members, we don't know. A lot of them are busy human beings, either raising kids or raising kids and running a business. So those people only meet once or twice a month sure. for maybe several hours. So it's, it, we'll have to see how they get energized. But one of our messages, communicate locally with your legislators and make them read your message that it's important and give them specific reasons why you need the money. Um, um, you had said something in the beginning that I, I want to kind of move over to referendum because we're looking at a couple um, within the state this time around. We've got, I think, one construction and one general fund, which are the kind that schools um, can get. And one of the big ones, I guess, that we've been looking at with state impact is this pre-K referendum in Bartholomew County. Have you all been following this? Only thanks to state impact, actually. <laughs> um, well, I, I kind of just want to talk about, you know, obviously we're talking about money going into campaigns, but then we're asking, you know, communities for money to fund some of these programs. And I guess let's talk a little bit about referendum and just kind of how those have, have gone in the last couple elections. Dave, do you remember when it was that, that Indiana created the current referendum law? Um, 2008 09. Very, okay. very good. <laughs> that, that's close enough for me. And we've kept score, not in my department. I, I'm in the legal department. We help resolve issues daily for schools, and I don't get involved that, that much. But I, I know what Bloomington did, and they backed education. But schools really are hiring experts. Uh, quite a bit that have run this that make a business out of referendums to galvanize but uh, Brian Smith at Hamilton Southeastern as the superintendent spent hours and hours going door to door school board members hours and hours of showing people and talking to people eyeball to eyeball and heart to heart and and this is why it's important so it's a it's a communications uh, issue and, and hopefully in Bartholomew County they can get their message out similar to what the, in Monroe Counties was successful as well. By, by, by way of a little background, um, referenda, referendums can take place uh, to get local voters to approve funding um, either for construction funding for buildings that, that the corporation feels are needed or additional uh, general fund money to hire more staff or 
hire more teachers or reduce class size or add, keep or uh, add programs um, by paying addition, getting the voters to choose voluntarily to support paying additional property taxes. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like to add any last-minute questions or comments, you can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. Uh, I do have a question for, for whoever's willing to answer. If if Bartholomew County voted no on this pre-K referendum in, in 2012, what's likely changed um, in, in the last two years that that might have shifted the political climate to have people vote yes. Again, I don't know Bartholomew County, but I think you can speculate that uh, preschool education has become more of a hot topic, including in Indiana, uh, at least has uh, generated uh, some lip service support from uh, people in both parties. Um, Indiana did create, uh, after years of discussing it, finally a, a small pilot program to start uh, providing some state funding for pre-K programs in, I think, a half dozen uh, selected counties. So I, I think the issue is, is moving, and there's more discussion, certainly more uh, kind of uh, uh, civic uh, leadership support for the concept. Certainly in Indianapolis, there's been a big push from the mayor, uh, from business leaders, from the newspaper uh, to, on behalf of, of uh, broadened pre-K programs. So it may be that, that it's, it's caught on a little bit in, in Columbus as well, and also maybe that they've uh, might think they can come back and run a little bit better campaign. That's exactly right. I think we've seen a huge increase in broad bipartisan support for investment in early childhood education. Even in conservative states like Oklahoma, they have a universal uh, funded pre-K program that's available to all three and four-year-olds on a voluntary basis in the state. Uh, that program pays for itself. So the returns to investing in that program are three to four dollars per dollar invested. Uh, I think people are realizing that intervening early with children can really help help close achievement gaps between particularly low-income and high-income children as they enter kindergarten and can save a lot of money on the back end in terms of remediation. Oklahoma and Georgia, two very conservative, uh, Republican-controlled uh, politically states uh, are the states that have had like really the model uh, state pre-K funding uh, that other uh, people around the country have looked to. We should note, too, that this referendum, uh, some of the reporting that we did on this was um, talking to the superintendent who had said that um, in 2012 when they attempted this the first time around, the state law for general fund referenda could not include a description of what the money would go for, that taxes, the tax money that was being raised, whereas construction referenda has always included a description of where that money is going to. So I don't know. I, I find that kind of interesting that that was – you know, not written into law because what he said to, to us was that when we took this to the state legislature, they were like, oh, of course, why, why would that not be a part of it? So um, I don't know. I, I'm just interested, I guess, in, you know, how putting these items on the ballot, how they're worded, where they're placed even, you know, how does and that what, impact? What uh, what election you choose to have it? Do you have it in right. a, during a uh, an off-year election like this when, when you might be able to motivate people? On, on the other hand, the opposition might motivate uh, people to come out and vote, or do you have it in a, a an on-year election when uh, everyone is likely, more people are likely to vote because of the president and the governor being on the ballot? Do you have it in, in a, a total off-year election where you have to actually pay, the school corporation would have to pay for 
putting it on the ballot and running the election because there's no election scheduled, hmm. for example, in 2013. Um, but uh, so then you run, then you have a smaller audience to try to target potentially, but you also run the risk of uh, reaction against that because you're, you're spending our taxpayer money to run an election that we didn't have to have. A lot of uh, strategic decisions that, that go into how to do this. And a lot of discussion over the years, I think at the legislature in terms of how uh, ballot questions can and should be worded, whether it should be uh, very prescribed and what sort of activities uh, school employees uh, can legitimately engage in. So if the ballot measure is defeated, is it something that, that will likely reappear in the next election? I think, I don't know. You lose you two times, come, it's a struggle to come back. But. Right, and it takes a, a huge effort again, so there's just that human energy factor. And so hopefully Bartholomew County now is focused down to preschool, as you were saying, Alexander. Hopefully that will carry the day in, in that community. But the law is very rigid right now. When it's a general fund increase, it just says shall, you know, the, the taxes be raised so much in terms of, of the general fund expenditures of a school, and, and you're not allowed to say anything. But that's where your door-to-door campaigning and your use of the media is, is would help. This is what we want that money for. Monroe County, of course, had a referendum uh, a number of years ago that failed before the one that succeeded. Mm -hmm. And and uh, uh, I think it was, uh, it was, again, it was a different set of laws at the time, but and maybe arguably less uh, de demonstration of financial need because it was before, uh, you know, the, the, the recession and, and there hadn't been the same hit on schools at the time. Uh, but, you know, a lot of rare, very civically minded people and very competent people were involved in trying to run that referendum. And it fell flat, uh, ran into a lot of opposition, can some of it because uh, there had been some visible spending on, on uh, school facilities. Then people felt like, you're taking my taxes to build this building. I'm not going to give you more in my taxes to, to hire more teachers. Yeah, I think, I think just the fact that we have these referenda in place in Indiana highlights an issue uh, of equity across school corporations. So we have, in theory, this policy that says, you know, we should be distributing funding to school districts on a per pupil level with some, on a per pupil basis with some adjustments. That's why we have a policy of centrally collecting taxes at the state level and then redistributing them across school districts. So local school, local taxes don't stay locally with the exception of these referenda. And there are substantial Substantial differences across school corporations in both their ability and capacity to place a referendum on the ballot in the first place, as well as to subsequently pass a referendum. And depending on whether a school corporation is property poor versus property wealthy, there are differences, you know, even small differences in tax rates can produce large differences in revenues. That's a huge issue. I think that uh, over the years, the success rate of ref referendums has gone up somewhat. I think they're pretty close to around 50% overall at this point. But uh, everyone knows that property poor districts just know better than to try because it's too much of a bite on the taxpayers to do anything significant. What other options do those districts have besides putting an item on the ballot? Voluntary contributions is a big is a big issue. Uh, so uh, they can raise revenues locally through a parent-teacher organization, a parent-teacher association, a local foundation, an endowment, or through Booster Club. And we've seen a huge increase nationally 
uh, in the last 10, 20 years in voluntary contributions to public schools basically to top up the difference between what parents want to spend on local education and what they're receiving from state, federal, and local sources. But I think, Ashlyn, as you've pointed out, there are issues of equity with that as well. That's absolutely right. We've only got a couple of minutes left here, but before we go, I just want to ask if there's anything you you all want to add about you know the elections this time around or in general, you know, Dave's school board elections. What what sort of should people take away from this uh, this talk that we've had? Well, personally, I think it's great that that people are are thinking about election uh, uh, education with regard to elections, uh, and I think it's great that people are that school board elections, for whatever reason, are getting a lot of attention because. The real knock on school boards, on elected school boards, is that nobody pays attention, nobody votes, nobody knows who they are. So the more people are noticing these elections and the more people are noticing the importance of education and state policy with the legislative elections as well, the better it is. I think we might let that be the last word. That was pretty well said. All right, we want to we want to thank all our listeners today, and we want to say thank you again to our guests Ashlyn Nelson, Steve Hinnefeld, and Dave Emmert. Thanks to my co-host Rachel Morello from State Impact Indiana. Our producer is Lacey Scarmana, and our engineer is Mike Pescash. I'm Alexander McCall, and this is Noon Edition. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.